Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. As usual, so happy to have you. So excited to be here. So excited to be getting into some folk and fairy tailing on this fine winter's evening. And I say that even though it is spring. Because it's cold outside and I don't like it. Is it cold where you are? It is and it's not normally cold where I am. Okay, everybody is about to hear something nitpicky from me personally. I get frustrated when people are like, it's supposed to be spring, but now it's back and forth cold outside. I'm like, yeah, no, that's what spring is. <laughs> or also like in fall where they're like, I was expecting fall weather, but it's going back and forth between <laughs> two. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's totally normal. That's exactly what the season is. Uh-huh. And so if you are in a place that experiences spring, if you are going through days where it is so beautiful, sunny, you're starting to have hope and then the winds blow in and it's cold for a couple days and you're like, oh, man, have no fear. Don't worry about it. You're, you're going to live through this. <laughs> it's just a good metaphor for life. Yeah, because it, it, it is one of those in between spaces. I mean, we don't notice temperature fluctuations as much in summer or winter because it just goes from like one unbearable stage of heat to another unbearable stage of heat and then mm. back to still unbearable stage of heat. Right. Or, you know, the opposite for winter. But weather happens like it changes. Yeah. Often, sometimes several times in a day as winds blow, it's fine. It's not fine. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't care if it's the way the world is. It sucks. Anytime I'm like, the reason why I bring this up is because the other day I said to somebody like, oh, yay, it's spring. It's here. And they're like, no, it's going to be cold tomorrow. I'm like, well, yes. Like that doesn't change the definition of spring. Yeah. Especially when it's like, yep, nope, but the leaves are already coming back on the trees. So it, it is spring. It is happening. But part of spring is the like the back and forth of it. I will work that into my definition of spring going forward, <laughs> but not without grumpiness. That's fair. So anyway, <laughs> let's do a podcast <laughs> about folktales. Yeah. So our fifth Friday Fable Fest is coming up on March 31st at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So please come to the live event. It's going to be on our Instagram, the fairy underscore tellers. If people are interested in watching that live, we love seeing people interacting in the chat and talking with people in the chat. And speaking of a person in the chat... I chan art. I feel like they're the person that we give a lot of shout outs to. They are, but they deserve it because like waking up in the middle of the night to come to our fifth Friday Fable Fests, that's some dedication. Staying up until yeah. late, late in the middle of the night to listen. We deeply appreciate. And the reason why they have to stay up so late to listen to us is because they live in Turkey. 
And today we are going to be doing an episode of Turkish Tales. Nice. I had been looking into a Turkish Tales episode for a while. There was even a person that I met at the American Folklore Society conference who was like, oh, you do a podcast of folktale and fairy tale from around the world. Have you ever done one on Turkey? And I was like, no. (laughs) And then I was like, but I should because I know that we have like listeners that are in Turkey. We have a a fair number of listeners in Turkey. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Like they were for a while, not anymore, but they were for a while, like one of outside the United States. Well, and I say that, but for a while, the United States was not even the most downloads, uh, downloaded country. Yeah. But Turkey was like up there for a long time and still is, but it was like yeah. number two for a while. Yeah. Cause like at the, at the beginning of the podcast, we had most of our audience was outside of the U.S. And as the years have gone on, more audiences joined from the United States and yeah. from other countries. And so it's like shifted the demographic. But yeah, Turkey was one of the countries that we had like the most listeners for a while. And I never even did a story from Turkey. And I'm like, why? So I've been thinking about doing a Turkish Tales episode for a while, but kept getting pushed. And earlier this year, at the beginning of February, there was a completely catastrophic earthquake in the south of Turkey near the border of Syria. So that region has been on my mind a lot lately. And it's interesting because one of the things that we talk a lot about on the podcast is that when you know the stories of other people, you can relate to them better, even though they're far away and remote from you. Mm-hmm. And that has really been true for us as we've been working on the podcast that not just as we've gotten to know tales from different places from around the world, but as we've interacted with people from around the world who are interested in the podcast and love learning about other people and also hearing, you know, their countries and their folk tales get like a shout out. We feel more connected to other countries in the world. And so our heart goes out to Turkey while they're trying to rebuild regions and grieve the loss of so many lives. And so we thought that we would do this episode on some fun Turkish tales to lighten the mood and also help other people who maybe don't know anybody in Turkey feel more connected to this country. Nice. So Turkey is a region that is so rich in history because world history wise, like it goes way back. Yeah. As part of the Fertile Crescent, Humanity has been crisscrossing over it and settling in parts of it for tens of thousands of years. So just very, very fascinating region of the world, both historically and currently. Very rich in culture. And, you know, because anytime there's that like kind of like crisscrossing of people through a region... Their stories always are like very, very rich in the culture that they are from. And I've found myself thinking a lot about the quote from Zora Neale Hurston that we said back 
in February when we did our Zora Neale Hurston episode. She said, in folklore, as in everything else that people create, the world is a great big old serving platter and all the local places are like eating plates. Whatever is on the plate must come out of the platter, but each plate has a flavor of its own because the people take the universal stuff and season it to suit themselves on the plate. And this local flavor is what is known as originality. Yeah. A lot of the stories that I was looking through were familiar to me like they sounded Mm -hmm. familiar to me either because they reminded me of stories that were from the thousand and one nights or because they sounded like some of the european variants that we've looked at for different tales Mm -hmm. it's just fascinating because it's not to say that like oh this story didn't originate here or this story isn't really from this place because most of the parts are from who knows? No, it it's fascinating to look at the stories and be like, okay, what flavor does this story have? Like what flavor has been like added to this story that makes it incredible? And so many of those stories had familiar elements, but also were just themselves. Like they, they were their own thing because mm. they'd been made that way by the people. I feel like a lot of the time when... A variant is found, a story is found, and it sounds so similar to other stories, it almost seems like it cheapens it. It's like, oh, well, other people have their own version of this story, and so it's not actually unique to the place that I live, so it's not special. It's not a Hungarian story, or it's not a Brazilian story, because Uh there's other variants. And it's like, no, the thing that makes it a Brazilian story is that it is Brazilian flavors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing that I like about it too. Because there are similar stories that exist, that to me just makes the differences, the unique parts to the different cultures or countries or whatever, like it makes them stand out in a way that makes it like, you know, really easy to notice number one and then be like, I wonder why that choice was made and what, you know, and then you can go in and find out, you know, look into it a little bit and you can see like we do all the time. We're like, that is different and I don't understand it. So what is behind that? And then you go and you look in and it's like, Oh, that's the reason. Like uh, an example that comes to mind was some of the Cinderella tales. Like we were for, there's one from the Philippines. There was one from China. And in the, the Chinese one, it was all these animals that appear in it are all like crustaceans and like sea creatures and stuff like that. We're like, what is going on? Cause that's not necessarily what I think of it. It's like, Oh, we looked into it in the episode and you're like, it comes from a region of China that is like right on the coast, right by the sea. And seafood would have been a bit, was a big part of like their, you know, source of food and their culture. It's like, so that would be the thing that was familiar to them. Whereas other animals that might've been familiar to people, you know, in inland Europe would not have been yeah. familiar to those people. And it's just like, so fascinating and amazing. And then seeing kind of the, I don't know, the ways that they interact, especially, I, I especially love when stories and we've been able to like demonstrate how they kind of like cross cultures and to see how that changes them. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like you said, you get the flavor, the flavor that is unique to it. And it like, even though it's chicken that you're eating and chicken <laughs> tastes like chicken, like it's the seasonings and the spices that you put on the chicken that set it apart, that make it like interesting. That's why you like some chicken more than others, you know, because the flavor. When I was researching for Turkish tales, I found a book called 44 Turkish Fairy Tales by Ignaz Kunos. 
he wrote this book in 1913, so over 100 years ago. And I do want to let people know, so I found it on archive.org, available if people want to look it up. I just do want to warn people before before they look it up that the stories and illustrations do include stories that are anti-Semitic and racist towards the people of the African continent. So definitely be aware of that. And it's very blatant. And even in the images themselves, it's there. So I just, I don't approve of banning books, but making people aware of like the time period that a book was written and what problematic material might be in there. And I will also say that I feel like we have to say stuff like that a lot because of the material that we work with. And so it's not a calling out of any one group of people saying like, oh, if you look at this Turkish tales book, a lot of them have these stories. They're not the only ones, but yeah, just be aware. It's one of those things where we are talking about folk tales being Mm -hmm. of, again, the folk, just the people and like racism and anti-Semitism. And, you know, some of these like not great aspects of humanity have been around for a while in yeah. all sorts of different forms. So it's like, it makes tons of sense that it would show up in folk tales, especially of like, just it's more of a, I feel like a time period thing, like, and especially the time periods when lots of, uh, you know, these tales were being collected. It seems like the late 1800s seems to be a good mm-hmm. time for that. And especially because of the reasons why, like this whole like idea of like national identity and differentiating yourself as a, a nation and a group. It's like by very nature of that activity. Yeah. You are like othering other people, obviously. And so like, it's like, oh, saying what is us and what is not us. And in that process becomes some not so great thing. So it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's no surprise. And it's like, just because it's part of humanity and like, we're going to encounter it everywhere. And we really have, like, there's no folktale collection that you can read that you're not going to have something like that in it that you're going to have to like, look at and examine and be like, hmm, that's not my fave. But yeah, just want to warn people, if they look up this book to look up stories, you are going to encounter that it is there. But also what is there are other stories like the ones that we're about to tell you, which don't have those themes in them. So I love looking at a collector of tales introduction to the book. So I wanted to read part of the preface for this book. But first, I wanted to say something about about Ignaz Kunos. So he was a Hungarian linguist and considered himself to also be a Turkologist, which I didn't know. Is that the term for it? That was the term for it. Nice. I like that. But yeah, so Turkology is a... uh, the language, history, folklore, culture of people speaking Turkish languages. So it was like he was a Hungarian linguist and he did a lot of work with that. But then also he devoted a lot of his work to studying Turkey, the language in Turkey, and then also folk songs, folk poetry, folk customs, tales. So that was what he focused on. And so the language was something that he 
was really fascinated by. Listen, I don't understand people who are fascinated by language and they want to study the intricacies of language. I don't get it. But I appreciate that this world is full of people who are interested in studying things that I would never. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because I actually do understand why people are so interested in language because I definitely am one of those people. I love it. And I learned so much more about English, like by studying things in other languages, about other languages than I do um, when I study English myself. Yeah. I just love like learning stuff like that. I don't know what this is a... Uh, language of the world podcast. <laughs> a, a linguist appreciation podcast. Yeah. So Ignaz Kunos, he ended up dying in a 50 day siege during World War II. And so the day of his death, it appears, is unknown because it happened during the siege in Budapest. And so all of the work that he did, you know, obviously predates World War II. (laughs) Just mind boggling that this guy's work all happened before he died. (laughs) He was very special that way. (laughs) One thing that I thought about when I found out like how he died was just the cost of human life in war and the also the cost of like not just the life and the people that we love and and are there but also uh, a loss of potential for the rest of their life of like what good they could have done in the world and so when we think about the loss of human life it isn't just that you know oh they don't get to like grow old but it's also that we as humanity lose something in the potential that they had. Right. And so, like, you know, who knows what other stuff he would have done. He organized the Department of Folkloristics at the Istanbul University, and he could have done more with his life. And so, I don't know, it made me think. So, yeah, Ignaz Kunos, at the beginning of... This book of tales, he wrote, The stories comprising this collection have been culled with my own hands in the many-hued garden of Turkish folklore. They have not been gathered from books. I have jotted them down from time to time and now present them a choice banquet to the English reading public. And what is unique about this also is that most of the books that he wrote were in Hungarian and other European countries and in other European languages. And so Mm -hmm. it is nice to have an English version of tales for us, Jeff and I, who speak English and read English. I appreciate being able to read things in my language. Indeed. So these tales are by no means identical with, nor do they even resemble those others that have been assimilated by the European consciousness from Indian sources and the Arabian Nights. All real Turkish fairy tales are quite independent of those. Rather, are they related to the Western type, so far as their contents and structure are concerned. And I thought that that was really interesting, that he wants to distance these groups of tales from Indian sources and the Arabian Nights sources, Mm -hmm. but says, like, oh, they're closer to being Western 
type tales. And yeah, I found that really interesting because as I was reading some of these tales, they I was reminded of tales that you can find, tale types that you can find in like the Grimm's Brothers collection. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was really interesting, but then it also made me wonder if he was... As he was collecting stories, as he was listening to them, if he was also more drawn towards those ones. Right. Like those are the ones that he wrote down and not, he's like, oh, yeah, these are cool because they're like the ones that I already know. Exactly. Mm, it's possible. Because anytime somebody's picking and choosing what is worth documenting, what is worth keeping, you know, they they're making conscious decisions of their own. And so that's always kind of interesting to note yeah just by the very nature like you can't show evidence of something that you didn't record you know what i mean like yeah there's no proof for something that you did not like record mm-hmm. and if it wasn't recorded because whatever reason you know what i mean it's like all the ones that were recorded were like this but it's like who's to say like maybe it was that's because this is kind of how all the stories were or not but it's like you can't prove that either way yeah all you have is what was recorded and what was recorded was like this so it's like ah, i don't know yeah it's kind of like survivorship bias is what you're kind of pointing out as far as like the ones that survived are the ones that were picked because of potentially this person's biases towards yeah. stories that were like the ones that they already knew, which is interesting. But it is also just interesting that there were that there are so many stories that are similar. Yeah. But also it makes perfect sense, as you pointed out earlier, like Turkey's like a really interesting place geographically where there's like a lot of like especially yeah i mean even today there's a ton of traffic from different parts of the world that go through there as far as like it's a major, major trading location lots of like ports and things like that because it's easily accessible from yeah you know like with the mediterranean sea and then even the black sea mm. like being a place that you can eat you know travel over by boat to get things places like that that all that water going so many different places like makes it really easy for things to like travel around so like i, I don't know it's just just a fascinating location that is so close to so many things that makes sense. Like cultures would be crossing there. Yeah. And and stories would be being deposited there as, and now my, my metaphor is changing from the serving platter to seeds. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, like these little seeds of stories that sprout and grow and turn into their own thing. But yeah, it, it makes sense that you, they're kind of like that serving platter is they have all of that to choose from. From so many different places. It's like a buffet that spans multiple types of food. It's not like a Chinese food buffet. Yeah. It's not like an Indian buffet. It is just a buffet that it's like a food court in the mall, but even better because <laughs> it's got every type of food that you can imagine just all there because people are coming through it and bringing their food to it so we can eat up. So then he says, Indeed, they may only be placed in the category of oriental tales in that they are permeated with the cult of Islam and that their characters are Muslims. So some of that language there is not necessarily how I would have stated that. Mm -hmm. But I thought that was interesting that he was saying, oh, everybody from the west of Turkey might read some of these tales and say, oh, yeah, yeah, these tales are definitely from the east of us. Which I guess uh-huh. is Turkey. That would be true. But, you know, they would say, oh, they're so different than us because the characters in the story are Muslims. And so that feels so different to majority Christian Europe. Uh-huh. But the structure and the content of them, he's saying, you know, are more Western than if people look closely at the structure, they'll see that they're they're really Western, even if he goes on to say 
The caftan yeah. encircles their bodies, the turban on their heads, and the slippers on their feet all proclaim their Eastern origin. And then he says, their heroic deeds, their struggles and triumphs are mostly such as may be found in the folklore of any European people. <laughs> Which, again, very interesting way to say that, as if stories from the east of Turkey, you know, are what European people would think are like, oh, tales from the east don't include heroic deeds, struggles and uh -huh. triumphs. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, that's very interesting. This is why I love reading like the introductions to things because you get kind of an idea about the person who recorded the tales. So he ends his introduction by saying, Turkish fairy tales are as crystal, reflecting the sun's rays in a thousand dazzling colors, clear as a cloudless sky and transparent like the dew upon a budding rose. In short, Turkish fairy tales are not the stories of the thousand and one nights, but of the thousand and one days. Which I think is a beautiful little turn of phrase. Yeah. But I don't necessarily agree with all of what he wrote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one story that we're going to start off with, it's the first story in the collection, and it is called The Creation. So this story sounds as if it is a creation myth but it is not a creation myth of of a religious group but it, it mirrors creation stories and i love it it's going to introduce us to some characters that pop up in other turkish tales and i just really enjoyed this kind of uh i don't want to say faux creation story but it's not a mythological a folklore creation story a just so tale the creation. Allah, the most gracious God, whose dwelling was the seventh heaven, completed the work of creation. And the stuff that he created, there were seven layers or planes in heaven, and there were seven planes in the earth, which was where the evil spirits lived. And in heaven, there were the peris, who were the good spirits, and that was where they lived. And then in the earth domain were the dews or the evil spirits, the light of Heaven and the darkness of the earth, the peris and the dews have been in conflict since the dawn of creation, apparently. Mm -hmm. The peris says they soar high in the heavens and high above the earth and the dews sink down into the darkness beneath the earth and the mountains act as a barrier in the road to heaven or the barrier between them. As a human being, I do find it quite distressing to think of like, we're just walking along the surface of the earth, like in between this like massive celestial fight. We live in the crossfire of a celestial battle for the ages. So only the good spirits also can reach the copper range, which is then open into the silver mountains and then into the hills of gold, which I don't know what either of those three, three things are, mm -hmm. but it does sound like. You know, copper, silver, gold, some Olympic medal action going on. Even though we know that it's bronze is the third place one. But the evil spirits, it says, are blinded by the radiance of heaven. And so that's one of the reasons why their dwelling place is below the earth. Because they don't want to be staring at that brightness all day. Because it hurts their eyes. And they say the entrance to this place beneath the earth is a spring of waters. So there, there live white sheep and black sheep. And the evil spirits can enter into the wool of those sheep and then can be conveyed to the realm of the seventh plane. 
And then on the white sheep, they return back to the earth's surface. So these sheep are basically like, you know, a taxi service between the different realms. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm following so far. Perry's and the Dews are both powerful and both were witnesses of the creation of Earth's original inhabitant, the first man. Bum, bum, bum. So Allah created the first man and appointed him on the Earth as his place to live, putting him in the crossfire between this battle <laughs> of, of the Perry's and the Dews. Yeah. And when the first mortal appeared on the Earth, the Perry's rejoiced over Allah's beautiful, wonderful, magnificent work and the father of evil looked at this creation and was overcome with the green-eyed monster of jealousy and envy. And so he came by a plan where he was going to destroy this beautiful work of Allah. I like how hard you're going into being like, that man was beautiful. He was so good looking. He was a Henry Jack Black type. Oh. <laughs> and so what the father of evil decided to do is he was going to implant the deadly seed of sin in the favorite creature of the almighty. And so the first man soon unsuspecting received on his pure, beautiful chiseled abs <laughs> on his pure body, the damnable spittle of the evil one. It says direct quote. And that spittle hit him right on the stomach. But Allah, all merciful and able to overcome anything, saw this happen. He was like, no, you aren't going to destroy my creation. So he hurried to the first man and grabbed the piece of contaminated flesh and ripped it out and flung Ooh. it to the ground. And this is how the human belly button was created. <laughs> and that piece of flesh that had been torn from this first man and thrown to the ground, having both this wonderful creation of Allah, the almighty and this piece of evil that had, you know, evil spit that had defiled it fell to the dust and brought forth new life. This new life grew from the earth and this new life was the dog made half from this perfect human body and half from the devil's spit. <laughs> and so this is why no good Muslim will harm a dog but still refuses to tolerate them in his house. <laughs> and it's the animal, this dog gets its faithfulness and its loyalty, these good qualities from its human side and the wildness and savagery it inherits from the spit of the evil one. And thus this story surprisingly becomes an origin story for both the belly button and the dog, <laughs> which is not where I expected it to no. go when it started with Allah created the earth. Yeah, so what I was super nervous about when I was reading this story and they were saying like, oh, yeah, with the combination of like divine flesh of the man and spittle from the devil, thus uh -huh. formed woman. That's what I was really <laughs> scared where I was going. It's like, oh, man. Just because it is like there are so many stories where it's like, oh, evil and ori like original sin and stuff like uh -huh. always seems to be blamed on like women or like a woman was somehow in the middle of like all that. So I was really nervous uh -huh. that that's where the story was going. And I was so prepared to be like irritated. Yeah. And then when it was like, but no, it was formed a dog, which is why like dogs are like so wonderful. So, cute and and so wonderful, but also little rascal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like I your dog, the dog peed on the carpet. That's because he's got the spit of the devil in him. <laughs> but he snuggles up so sweet to you at night. That's because he's, 
Allah's first wonderful, per- beautiful, perfect creation. Henry Cavill. <laughs> so another thing that I found just super interesting about the story, because again, like I said, like this isn't a a religious creation mythology, one that's like believed to have right. like literally happened in like a cosmological sense. But it's patterned after stories like this to be like a Chesso story, like why things are the way that they are. A pourquoi story, which did you know, fun fact about the podcast, we have had just so stories slash pourquoi stories on the schedule since day one. (laughs) And we have never done an episode on them. Although they have come up quite frequently. Yep. But, and that's why we want to do an episode on it, because if they're going to come up so often, we got to understand them. We got to explain them. We got to get get in deep on them. But are we going to do that? No. No. Probably never will. Not today. It'll be the the last episode <laughs> of the Fairy Tellers podcast. Because yeah, I mean they do like they because they're a genre of tale that tells why something happened. And they are fun. We should do an episode on them. <laughs> so yeah, we should. So even though you know this story isn't like an actual like mythology cosmology creation story, I absolutely love that it explains dogs. And that dogs are like part of us. And one of the reasons I find that so fascinating is it's really hard to tell anthropology wise how long we have been domesticating dogs, Mm. because the only way we can tell really is by their their skeletons that we find. Uh And the changes are subtle in the skeleton. But some of the oldest evidence for domestication dates back 36,000 years. Oh my gosh. Do you know when the next animal was domesticated? No. Like 10,000 years ago. So (laughs) for 26,000 years, one of the only animals that was domesticated was a dog. And so it's, it's been humans and dogs for tens of thousands of years. And so We've been so intricately tied with each other for so long that it makes sense that there would be some kind of story that's like explaining how since the creation of (laughs) people, we have had dogs because I mean, that is kind of how it feels (laughs) that like they've changed so much from their wolf ancestors to, I mean, especially the variety that we have today. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, so it's just fascinating to me and I love it. I'm obviously a dog person. Do you know what's funny is that cats are not domesticated. I was going to bring that up too. It's like dogs are domesticated 37,000 years ago. 36,000. Yeah. 36,000. Okay. 36, 37. What difference does a thousand make in that, (laughs) you know, like bit of a time span. 36,000 years ago, dogs are domesticated and yet cats are still not domesticated. They're technically just like tame, wild animals that live in your house. They're just habituated to people. And like the second, the second that their owners like die and are gone, they are like, all right, better get back to hunting. Like, and they can't like, and they do. I'm cause it's funny how we'll like employ cats. Like there are cats that work at like the Louvre. I mean, obviously cats Uh have worked in barns, Cats have lived alongside us, but yeah, we have not domesticated them. I don't, they might be undomesticatable. Certainly seems that way. (laughs) 
The rascals. They're not interested. And so, yeah, I just absolutely loved this story that, you know, humans, I love that it didn't end up with, you know, them saying that women were made out of the devil's spit. Yeah, same. But apparently I'm totally fine with like dogs being a little, a little bit evil. (laughs) Yeah, because it makes sense. Yeah. Dogs are a little bit evil. Oh, yeah. My dog is constantly coming up with some original sin. (laughs) A sin never before seen. (laughs) It always surprises me. So I also like how that story introduced us to Perry's, which in some translations, Perry's gets translated into fairies. But we could see in the story, especially the one that you just told, uh, they're kind of closer to the idea of like angels than they are to fairies. But this otherworldly creature who usually seems to be helpful more than harmful. And then it also introduced us to do's, which are closer to how we would conceptualize like demons. Mm -hmm. Because now in a story that I'm about to tell, we are going to see these characters again. And now that you told your story, we are already familiar with them. And where they live and how they travel between those living places yeah. in the wool of sheep. So this story is called The Magic Mirror. And the reason why I picked this is because we've been doing our Snow White project. And I just want to say this story, not a Snow White tale. That's disappointing. It is a little bit. But also this story is pretty cool. So you'll, you'll get over it. I'm excited. <laughs> But, we, you know, we've been talking about like different magical objects. The magic mirror in this story, it is a MacGuffin. MacGuffin. If anybody is familiar with the term, it's basically a item that it's the whole reason why all the plot is going on, but has very little to do with like the rest of what happens. Yeah, it's not actually, it's not actually important. It's just... Something to get things going. Yeah. Like like the briefcase full of files in like a spy movie. Like, did the files in those contents actually ever turn out to be anything meaningful or of consequence to the story itself? No, but the fact that everyone wants them, that's what makes the events of the story yeah. take place. And therefore, it's what makes it a MacGuffin. Yep. So the magic mirror in this story, 100% a MacGuffin. But it is interesting to note the thing that the magic mirror does just because different magic mirrors in tales do different things, which I just find fascinating because it's like, you'll see magic mirrors pop up in stories like beauty and the beast where it'll be like, Oh, this mirror connects to another mirror to communicate between the two people. That's not Uh what happens in Beauty and the Beast. No. You'll see like a magic mirror in Beauty and the Beast and its ability is to like show the viewer a person that they love. Mm. Sometimes the mirrors will show, you know, what's happening around the world or whatever. So you'll see like different mirrors have kind of different things that they do, whether it's like a portal to another dimension or something else. But it's just fascinating to me. I don't know if it's interesting to anybody else, but the different magic that different mirrors can do. Not all magic mirrors are the same. Yeah. Some will let you see the one you love and some will tell you whether you're hot or not. And not just by your reflection, but by actually speaking the words to your face. Yeah. So there was once a Padishah, which 
is a uh, sultan, a, a leader. Yeah, because basically in any story, you'd sub him out for like a king and right. any European tale. Um, so this Padishah had three sons. He also possessed, which I thought was interesting because it's like he, he possessed. <laughs> he possessed three sons and then he also possessed. Anyway, just the choice of words is interesting because you cannot possess children. They're their own human beings. It's fine. He had three sons and he also possessed a mirror, which he looked in every morning when he got up because in this magic mirror, it would show him everything that was going to happen throughout the day. Mm. Spoilers. <laughs> I want my day to be a surprise. For real. So we got up one morning and he went about the day without remembering to look in his mirror. And after he had finished most of his duties, he remembered, oh, yeah, I was supposed to look in my magic mirror to remember what I was supposed to do today. Whoop. But he couldn't find his mirror. So he searched. He searched everywhere, but it could not be found. And... He was so worried about losing this mirror that he immediately became ill, like just terribly, terribly sick, which I'm like, dude, I, I don't know if that's a healthy amount to love an object. <laughs> worried sick over where his mirror had gone off. To. Yeah. And willing to basically sacrifice anything to get it back. I don't know. We, we need to love people and not things. I'm with you. What it, what, there's like a saying that's like, love people and use things, but never the other way around. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That is good advice. Anyway, that was that advice had not been given to this man. So he was absolutely <laughs> worried sick that he had lost this magic mirror. And his three sons, you know, saw how ill their father was. And they're like, oh, no, what's causing this? What's happening? And he's like, I'm grieving for the loss of my fine mirror. And the sons were like, okay, don't put yourself through so much pain, father. Like, we will go and look for it if that's what you want us to do. And the Padishah was like, absolutely, yes, go look for my mirror. That would make me feel better. And it said, for if the mirror was not soon found, he felt he would die of grief. Man, he really loved that Yeah, mirror. bad day not to look in that mirror. So he sent his sons on their journey and they had not traveled long when they came to a place where three branches in the road appeared. And right where this road forked into three different branches, there was a large stone which had inscriptions for the directions that each road took. So it said that the first was the stroller's way, which I'm assuming means like, like an easy walk. Uh-huh. The second led to an inn, and the third way, the stone said, was the way in which no one ever returned. Ooh. So the eldest brother took the first road. <laughs> Dibs. The stroller's way, yeah. <laughs> the middle brother took the second road to the inn, and the youngest brother took the third road. <laughs> Which I'm like, wow, guys. They're like, well, see ya, bro. <laughs> so before they parted their three different directions, they each took off a ring and put it under the stone that had the directions. That way they would know when they came back to that same place if the others had returned from their trips yet. 
Mm. Which I was like, oh, that's really smart. Yeah. Now we have like geotags and stuff like on our like different devices or like. Like, hey, share your location with me so I know that you made it back safe, yeah. bro. But I guess their way works too. Yeah. <laughs> so I love that the story says, we will now let the two eldest go their respective ways and follow the adventures of the youngest brother. Ooh, nice. Yeah. He's going on the most exciting journey. Hey, do you want to watch an older brother go on a walk or some guy go and take a nap in an inn? Or do you want to watch the uh, the one brother who's going to this path that leads to a place from whence no one ever returns? And we're going to try to find out why that is. It's not because it's so nice and lovely that they're just like, you know what? I don't want to go back. I don't think that's the case. I think some crazy stuff happens down this third path. Yeah. So that's who we're going to follow. Yeah. That's the story you want to see. So on arriving at the top of a mountain, he caught sight of it says a dew mother. So this is one of those dews, but a woman. And it's interesting because she kind of seems to be kind of like an equivalent of a troll or mm. a giant. But usually women who are trolls or giants tend to be more helpful if you're nice to them. And that is kind of the situation in this story as well. She was in the middle of baking and he went up to her and embraced her and called her mother, Mm. which I want to bring back, you know, that mother as like a respectful term for like a woman who is older than you or like wiser has like Mm -hmm. some intelligence, worldly wisdom. It's just a respectful term. And I, I love it. Anytime I see in like stories, it used as a respectful term. And so did the do woman. <laughs> She's like, you know a way to a do's heart. Yep. She said, oh, little son, if you had not called me mother, I should have torn you asunder. <laughs> 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 yeah, put some respect on that demon's name. That's what I like to say. And he replied, and if you had not called me little son, I should have cut you down with my sword. <laughs> Like, oh, this is a nice little yes back and forth they got going. So on. sweet. If you weren't so respectful, I'd have killed you. If you weren't so respectful, I would have killed you. So I guess it's good. We're both such sweet, respectful people, <laughs> or demon mothers, indeed, as the case may be. <laughs> so the do mother asked him, you know, where he had come, where he was going, and why. And so he told her that he was the Padishah's son. And he was looking for this magic mirror that his father had lost. And the Dew woman was like, oh, yeah, that mirror was carried off by the Dews. They took it to their garden and they are guarding it. So I don't know if you're going to get it back. And he was like, oh, well, I need to get it back for my dad or else he's going to die. And the Dew mother was like, "Okay, I'll help you. If you go to the garden of the Dews, and you see that their eyes are open, you can be certain that they're asleep. <laughs> the like reverse is like so right. interesting. But she's like, so if they're asleep with their eyes open, fear not, go forward and fetch the mirror. But just so you know, in the garden where the dews are, every tree is covered with diamonds and precious stones. Be very careful not to touch them. Touch nothing but the mirror. Oh, man. I, like, immediately, my brain was like, There's a lot of... Aladdin. What? Yeah, and there's lots of things that this reminded me of, too. Mm -hmm. Like, that whole opposites thing. What story was it where 
they're like, you have to do the opposite of everything that this person <gasps> tells you to do. Yeah, that was like one of the... That was a Cinderella tale from the Middle East. Oh, the Middle East. Where they were like down a well. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, my mind is blanking, but I know what you're talking about, where they had gone down a well. It was one of those, it was like a cross between a good sister or a kind and unkind girl's tale and a Cinderella tale that I think we did in like our Middle Eastern Cinderella story one, Mm. where, yeah, it was, they were supposed to do the exact opposite that this like woman who was in the well told yeah. them to do like if she was like hit me on the head they were supposed to like comb her hair yeah but it did remind me of that and i like that yeah so it's interesting because some of the things that this story has already kind of like reminded me of are things that are thousand and one nights or middle eastern tales like adjacent uh-huh. when Like we said at the beginning, the author was kind of like, oh, these are closer to European tales, if you think about it. And I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) listen, one is not better than the other. So, like, don't worry if it's its own, if it is its own blend of special story. So the youth was grateful that he had gotten this wonderful instruction from the Dew woman. And he went on his way. Pretty soon he came to the Garden of the Dews and he saw that they were asleep because their eyes were wide open, like she had said. (laughs) So since their eyes were wide open, he could boldly just like walk in, grab the mirror and start heading back. But we all know what's about to happen. We've all been doing this game, this fairy tale game for long enough that we all know that on his way out of this garden with trees covered with diamonds and jewels, he absolutely just went ahead and plucked a branch off of one of the trees, figuring the dews won't notice if they're missing just one branch. Come on, bro. Obviously, instantly they all woke up and seized him. And they were like, what right have you to come in here? So, you know, the youth is begging for mercy, asking them to please let him go free. They agreed to let him go and let him keep the mirror if he came back with the sword of Arab Uzenji, who was a giant. Mm. He's going to have to steal this sword from a giant? Yep. Good luck, bro. So he promised them that that is what he would do, and they let him return to the Dew Mother. And so when he got back to her, he... (laughs) When he got back to her, she was like, okay, did, did I not warn you? Why did you do that? Why would you be that dumb? Like any mother, any woman, she was like, why? I gave you specific instructions. <laughs> and yet you did not follow They them. were so easy, <laughs> but you didn't listen. So, of course, you know, the youth, this youngest son, he was sad and sorry, and he asked the Doom Mother to help him get this sword. So she was like, fine. If you follow this other path, you will soon arrive at the palace of Arab Uzenji. And at the palace, you will see two doors. The one that is open, you will shut. The one that is closed, you will open and walk through. After you walk through, you're going to be in some like outdoor garden area. On one side of you, you will see a lion sitting next to a pile of meat. And on the other side will be a dog sitting next to a pile of grass. What you need to do is pick up the food, swap it 
And once you swap it, the animals will let you pass. Which again, I'm like the opposites. Open, close, open, close. Mm -hmm. Lion gets grass, dog gets steak, which I know any dog would be grateful for that swap. Oh, yeah. Lion, not so much. Yeah. (laughs) So then after you swap those things, you'll ascend this staircase. And at the top of the staircase, you will find Arab Uzenji's bedchamber and he will be asleep. Above him on the wall will be hanging the sword. Take it down quickly. Come right back and do not, do not withdraw the sword from its sheath. Seems like the most important instruction. And Mm -hmm. considering that he just recently had to face consequences for being dumb and not listening to the Doom Mother, you would think that he would follow the instructions explicitly. You would think. But he does not. So, you know, obviously he does the door swish wash shenanigan. He swaps the food for the critters. He heads up to the bedchamber of this giant. And there he finds this giant fast asleep snoring. And above its head, massive sword gets the sword and he starts leaving. He gets almost all the way back to the Doom Mother before he thinks to himself, you know what, I'm probably far enough away that I could take a look at this sword without a problem. Why would you think, bro, why do you need to know what it looks like? Just give it to the Doos and they'll give you the mirror. Yeah, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. But also, I kind of get it. Like, (laughs) you want to see the sword. It's like a sword and a sheath, not that interesting or cool. Looking, it doesn't, you know? listen, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, it doesn't, but, it doesn't have to be interesting to look at. You just need to get it from one place to another. I don't want, you know, somebody delivering a package to my house to be like, but what's in it? <laughs> this box isn't very interesting to look at. Right. Yeah. Just leave the but cover on it. I'm not a delivery person for this very reason because I do want to know what's inside all of these things including the sheath of that sword but I know it's going to be bad for this guy oh absolutely he pulls it out of the sheath immediately Arab Uzenji is right there mm. and grabs him which that's a pretty cool thing that that sword can do just immediately yeah, like, brings that guy right to him yeah so immediately the giant grabs a hold of this youth and he was like now I'm going to make you pay. And again, you know, the youth is like, no, 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 please. I oh, I did it so that I could <laughs> give it to the dues and get this mirror. And it's for my dad and blah, 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 blah. And the giant's like, I don't care. I'm taking you back to my house. Luckily, this time, the doom mother, also foreseeing this guy being stupid, was like, apparently before he had left, along with the instruction of do not unsheath it. She was like, If in the event that you do get taken by the giant, what you need to do is every day for 40 days, the giant, for some reason, is going to be giving you a lesson on transformation. (laughs) It seems like an odd punishment. Like, hey, uh, we caught you trying to steal my sword. Let me teach you how to transform like himself or other things into other things. I don't know, but it's like, it seems like that's not a good punishment for, like, maybe, stealing. Maybe he's a very boring lecturer, and he's right. going to torture him to death. He's like, right. finally, yeah. what I needed the entire time to perfect my lecture series 
a captive audience. <laughs> the the joke was that, that he's captive. He's a captive. <laughs> yeah, like literally. You're like, I got it, Katrina. I got you. Okay. So anyway, I love that the do mother ahead of time was like, okay, in the event that you do get captured because you can't follow directions, <laughs> here's what you need to do. For the next 40 days, he's going to be doing his lecture series with you. And at the end of every lesson, he's going to beat you. That does sound like more of a punishment now. Uh, he's going to beat you. And then he's going to say, he's going to ask, did you understand the lesson? <laughs> do you know how to do this yet? Uh -huh. To which the youth should always reply, I know it not. But when the 40 days are over, he'll, I guess, give up on teaching you. I'm unclear, but that is what happened. And he followed the do mother's instructions this time, but he, it prevention is much better. It's yeah. look, mm, uh, mm. you know, some people's a kids. few days, hours, however long it took to deliver that sort of patience would have saved 40 days of transfiguration lessons and beatings or transformation lessons yeah. and beatings. Anyway, the giant, after those 40 days, decided that he would let the youth free under the condition that he brought him the daughter of the Peri Padashah. So mm. this is the, like, the sultan, the leader of the Peris. Of the Peri. And so he wants the daughter. So the youth was like, yeah, no problem. I'll definitely do that. So he goes crying back to the do mother and told her everything that happened. And she like, obviously was like, I, Oh my goodness. I told you not to do that. And he was like, I know, but now it's all horrible. And how am I supposed to blah, 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 blah. Anyway, the do mother, she was like, okay, I will help you. So she said, the Perry princess lives in this one specific town where there are no men and it's impossible for any man to approach her or any of the women in the town. Paradise. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like just the average place, yeah, you know? Perfect. A woman's living in this town, no men. All the other women who live there don't have to deal with men. Oh, sorry. I just got distracted thinking about how wonderful that would be. <laughs> It is a paradise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, terrible. So apparently the Perry princess herself was kind of like a talisman because this like kind of not they don't describe it as like a curse, but this like kind of spell has been put under her that like she will repel human men mm. again. Just living the dream. <laughs> anyway, so the do mother was like, I'm not sure how you're going to be able to get close to this woman, you know, since he's a man. And a human. At and that. A hu yeah, he's a human man. But she was like, unless when the giant was teaching you his transformation lessons... You picked up on anything. And he was like, oh, yeah. I mean, after all those lessons, I definitely know how to turn myself <laughs> into a bird. Nice. And the do mother was like, perfect. 
change yourself into a bird, and then you need to fly into the Perry Princess's palace. That was too many Ps. It took me a second. Perry Princess's palace. You have to fly into the Perry Princess's palace. Peter Piper <laughs> plummeted into a Perry Princess's palace to procure a Perry Princess. And a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> so in the garden, there's a stone cage. And once you manage to fly into that stone cage, it will break the spell that repels men away. Mm. And then she will be, quote, at your mercy. Ooh, don't like that. Yeah, me either. And then you can take her and deliver her to the giant. So immediately the youth changed himself into a bird and flew to the town into the garden of this palace and landed in this stone cage. And it said, and, and because that happened, the Perry princess knew immediately that that bird must really be a human man. And so she said, <laughs> now son of earth, I have become a mortal creature like yourself. You have nothing to fear henceforth. I belong to you entirely. So not only did that like spell make it so that, you know, she wasn't repelling men for, you know, a 10 mm. mile radius or whatever, but also it turned her into a human woman, which I thought was really interesting, yeah. but probably still like as beautiful as a Perry. So hearing this, the youth shook his body and resumed his human form. <laughs> After this, Men and women could flow freely through the town. And she notified her father, the Peri Padishah, what had happened. And the youth informed her that he was also the son of a Padishah. And so he said that, you know, their wedding could take place at his palace if she would return with him. Which, as you all might recall... That's not what he was supposed to be doing yeah, with the Peri princess. That's not his plan. <laughs> or like, and so he's just lying to her that he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's go have a really great wedding back at my dad's place instead of having a wedding here. And she's like, OK. But as they approach the palace of the giant, the princess divined the youth's intention. She, <laughs> she figured it out. She's no dummy. And so, you know, she started to cry and object and she was horrified and he calmed her down and explained that he had every intention of trying to make sure that she wasn't left with a giant, but he needed to figure out a way that he could, you know, swap her for the sword without actually swapping her. But mm -hmm. He didn't need to come up with a full-blown plan because as they reached the gates of the palace, as they reached the gates of the giant's palace, he saw them and immediately was like, no, 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 get away from here. Go, go, go. If you were able to obtain the princess, all things are possible to you. Keep the maiden <laughs> and keep the sword. Don't come near me. So I guess, oh, wow. I guess it, you know, it was one of those like um, tiger milk situations where yeah. he had... Intended to just send him on a quest that would get him killed. Yeah. A wild goose chase. Yeah. That's often what happens in a wild goose chase. You get killed by the goose. <laughs> I didn't know that. Now I'm just terrified. <laughs> but yeah, that is funny. It's like he he wasn't he didn't really want the princess. He just wanted to give this person a task that would have gotten him killed, which is I want to say hilarious, but also like not cool, man. Yeah. 
that's not a cool prank. But it is funny that he's like, you did it? Oh my gosh. And he's like, you can have anything yeah, you want. Yeah, you're so scary. If you can do that, get away. Then, yeah. What's funny is that he was the one that taught him the trick that enabled him to be able yeah. to do that. It's like, you could have done this too, man. If you just applied your own lessons. The magic was inside you the whole time. <laughs> so the youth took the sword and the maiden and he went to the Garden of the Dews. And immediately when he got to the Garden of the Dews and they saw that he had this sword, they started yelling, get away, get away, don't come here. We fear you, for if you can take the sword of the giant and uh. also the Perry princess, all things are possible to you. Since you already have the maiden and the sword, we'll give you the mirror and also the branch you broke from the tree in our garden. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's getting all kinds of swag. Yeah, it's coming out pretty good in this situation. Not calling the princess swag. I'm, I'm <laughs> Right. He's getting swag and also a princess. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like sword, mirror, branch of jewels, and a wife. So, he goes back to the Dew Mother and thanked her for all that she had done. She wishes him well on his journey, which I love that it's like this creature that's like a demon, demoness, like type woman, but she's like, you know what? You were kind and respectful to me. It's totally fine. I'll be kind and respectful back to you. It has very like Baba Yaga vibes mm. to me or like right. kind of any of those like witches in the woods who are just like, if you are respectful to me, because like giant wives do that too, where yeah. or troll women, if you are kind to them, they can be helpful. Yeah, yeah. Then we're cool. Yeah. No problems. Yeah. But if you mouth off. They'll eat you. Yeah. I like that energy. I respect that. <laughs> so. He took all of this stuff back down the road that he was never supposed to return from. And, you know, he got back to that three-way fork in the road. And he looked under the stone and he discovered that all of the rings were still there, which meant that his brothers hadn't been able to come back. And as he was thinking to himself, man, what has happened to my brother's? He looked up and saw both of his brothers coming down their respective roads, both looking completely forlorn, hungry, sick. It says they hardly resembled human beings at all. Like, oh, so whatever roads they went down were rough or they were rude to whoever they met. Very likely. Yeah, because I'm like, probably what happens to anybody who goes down that other road is that they run into the doom mother and then they, you know, say something rude and then she just puts them in the pot and eats them. <laughs> anyway, the youth was so happy to see his brothers. And at first they were happy to see him and that he had gotten the magic mirror that he had found it. But then when they were looking at the princess that he had, that he was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to marry this lady. Mm. And the sword that he had from the giant and the branch of jewels, they were like, um, no fair. I hate you. <laughs> I am so mad. So what they did was they told their brother, oh, you know, we had such a rough go of it. I'm so thirsty. Is there any way that we can stop somewhere for a drink? And the brother was like, of course we can. And so the first well that they came to it had a big iron cover on it and the two eldest suggested that they you know put the youngest one down the well so that he can bring up a jug of water for them but of course once he was in the well they just dropped him 
put the iron cover on, grabbed the maiden, grabbed the sword, grabbed the mirror, grabbed the branch, and left. What punks. The only thing that they left him was his horse. So... When the youth realized that his brothers had left him, he, of course, was feeling sad, (laughs) and he wept bitterly. So, it says, the elders in due course arrived at their royal father's palace and gave him back the magic mirror, which they said they had recovered. But, they said, their youngest brother they had not seen since they had parted ways. Jerks! Yeah, so... What irks me is the Padishah says in his exceeding joy at the restoration of his mirror soon forgot the loss of his youngest son. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Which like, again, you need to love people and use things, not the other way around. That's not a good look, buddy. Mm -mm. And your mirror should tell you that. Just kidding. That's not what his mirror does. It just tells him what's going to happen during the day. It doesn't say that's not a good look, buddy. (laughs) But he'd be better served if it did yeah so the padishah decided that what he would do is arrange a marriage for his eldest son and the peri princess and then the story says now let us now return to the youth in the well (laughs) so the horse that was tied there for him was getting extremely hungry and extremely thirsty and so it decided it was going to stamp 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 on the iron cover of the well until at last it broke off. Mm. And once the iron cover was off the well, the youth was like, okay, now I have a chance to get out. Because before with the iron cover on, even if he had managed to climb to the top, there's no way he could have held onto the wall and moved the iron cover without just falling back. But now that the cover was knocked off, he exerted all of his strength to get to the top of the well and pull himself over. And then he climbed his body onto the horse and headed for home. And it said, when he returned back to his father's palace, his father's joy at seeing his long lost son knew no bounds, which I doubt. <laughs> he had forgotten all about him because yeah, he, was he was so happy to have a mirror. Yeah, so I'm like, and also wouldn't his mirror have told him that his son was going to be coming back that day? You'd think so, but he probably forgot to look in it again. Oh my goodness. He's always doing that. But it says the Padishah was extremely upset with the cruelty of the two eldest and decided to put them to death. Oh my gosh. Which this king, I'm like, sir, I don't, I don't think you're looking too good in this scenario either. No. But anyway, immediately he married the Perry princess to her real lover who had won her and rescued her from so much peril. <laughs> and the marriage feast lasted for 40 days and 40 nights and they lived happily ever after. Which is probably one of the first times that we've had a story actually end with those and words. happily ever after. Again, interesting, interesting, because the author very much wants these to sound European. Yeah. And so it's very interesting that he, like, really went for it right at the yeah. end. So... Hopefully, these stories were a fun little departure. I'm hoping to find even more Turkish tales from some different sources because I am interested in, you know, comparing them to what I'm finding from this one author and kind of his own slant and leaning towards what he thinks are like European tales Mm -hmm. versus Oriental tales. Yeah. Because... Obviously, now 
where where we are right now, like looking at stories, we can see that like there is beauty and value in all of these stories. There's not one area's stories are not any more like better or beautiful than another's. And so I am interested in continuing to look for more Turkish tales. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar Earth is seventh plane of heaven. Seventh heaven. Anyway.